Hello, Bethel fandom. Welcome to Keep Singing, a Beth Green and Bethel and Daryl Dixon podcast. It is I, your host, Sunny, aka Dynamic Symmetry on Tumblr and on Twitter and on many other places. And hello, yes, uh, so far I am keeping to the schedule that I said I wanted to keep to, and then very, very preliminarily there's lots of time for me to fuck things up. But yeah, so far it's working. This is episode four. Five, I believe, I don't want to click over to the page and check, but I believe this is episode five of our reading series, which means that we will once again be picking up where we left off with Vampire Cats Burn. We will, before that, be jumping back into Safe Up Here With You by yours truly, and we're going to be rounding out the whole thing with What You Think by Flora, which is a cute little one-shot, not angsty at all, really nice and fluffy and happy and sweet and so it really has almost nothing to do with either of the other two things that I'm reading. I I, kind of feel like I'm gonna try and do that sometimes. Just like, you know, angst, angst, and then to round things out. Because it makes as much sense as anything else. So yeah, before we get to that, uh, just a quick money-grubbing note. If you want to support this podcast, if you want to help me keep it going, which I hope you do, because if you're listening to it, I hope that means that you enjoy it and would like it to continue. Uh, First of all, and probably most importantly, please, please spread the word. If you like it, if you want other people to listen to it and you don't think they are, please tell them about it. Please reblog. Please wreck your friends. If you aren't aware, we're not just on SoundCloud. We are also on iTunes. You can subscribe via iTunes. And the neat thing about that is that you can rate and review on iTunes. And if you feel like doing that, that's absolutely fantastic. If you do those things and you are not content with them, you can also help this podcast monetarily, help me cover some of the costs that I pay out of pocket to keep it going, by either going to the PayPal tip jar at keepsingingpodcast.wordpress.com, little picture of a tip jar, click on that, it takes you to PayPal, or you can donate monthly via Patreon, and my Patreon is linked on the top of my Tumblr page, dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com, and it's also linked to the side of the Keep Singing SoundCloud page. So, both of those places. I want to send a huge heartfelt thank you shout out to the people who have already donated via the Patreon. I just want to name them so that you know how wonderful they are. Thank you to C.L. McCollum, to Elise Erickson, Ashley DeGroot, Rebecca Aguilera, Ambrosia Smith, and Aisha Bryant. Thank you guys so, 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 so much. If you want to have your name up there with all those lovely people, just go to Patreon and drop a dollar or two in monthly. I cannot tell you how much that helps me and makes me extremely happy and motivates me to do more of this, which again, I would be doing anyway, but you know. Okay, so one more thing before we get to first safe up here with you and then burn and then what you think. Uh, I normally do this in the text of the summaries of these when I post them on SoundCloud, but I just want to go ahead and do so explicitly here because while I'm never sure when I record these things exactly what music I'm going to end up using, uh, I want to send out a heartfelt thank you to all of the artists at freemusicarchive.org, which has just an unbelievable number of amazing Uh, Creative Commons artists, music that you can license without paying them an enormous amount of money, although you should give them money, you should donate and you should buy their albums if you like their stuff, because again, just absolutely fantastic stuff and helps me so much throw together a podcast that I am proud of. So yeah, enough of that. Let's go ahead and get to the fiction. See you on the flip side.
Safe up here with you, Chapter 5, and even on our worst days. She's not there, but he knows where she is. The sheets are still warm with her. He's still warm with her. And he lies there for a few moments, curled around the space she occupied when she was with him. The space and the orientation of his body are all the evidence he needs. It happened. It did. It wasn't just another nightmare. It wasn't something less or more. It was real, as real as anything is. She was lost in the horror of herself, but she let him come to her. She let him touch her. Touched him. Let him stay. Let him hold her. He pulls in a breath. It goes on for a while. Finally, he levers himself up, groaning, turns away from the rising sun, hammering against his eyes and skin and head, and takes stock of things. He hurts. He hurts everywhere. It takes him a few more seconds to remember why, not just the sullen ache in his muscles, but the sharper pain along his upper arm. When he looks at it, he sees four short gouges crusted with blood, echo of the hiss she made when she did it to him her eyes blazing almost as bright as the sun on his bare back. Gorman. He looks toward the sliding glass door, and she's out there on the deck, bent over the railing, her hair dancing pale gold in the breeze. He can't see what she's dropping this time, can't hear the sound of it shattering, but the memory of that sound surges up in him, boils its way into his forebrain, and he hears it anyway, almost musical, a cloud of glass shards glittering in the sun, her face, her eyes tracking its descent, her expression, not quite delight, but something not too distant from that. He watches her for a while. There's a long interval after the initial release where she doesn't appear to do much of anything. She merely stands there, head bent, staring down with her hands on the top of the rail. He knows how strong she is. He's had very detailed, very up-close and personal demonstrations. It would be a simple matter for her to lift herself up and balance there like a carving on an ancient Greek temple, a little marble nymph in a loose white t-shirt two sizes too big, poised in white, suspended over everything, in the cool arms of the wind. Wind would never hold her up. Neither will you. For a second, he almost shoves himself to his feet and charges for the door, throws it open, rushes her and seizes her and drags her, snarling and clawing at him like a wild thing, back into the house. He's vibrating with it, with wanting to do it, with the certainty that he will. He does shove himself to his feet, but he doesn't rush her. If she was going to jump, somehow he thinks she already would have, at least today. Tomorrow is always another story. He's pouring syrupy fruit cocktail into a couple of bowls when it occurs to him that they can't keep eating out of cans. Not for much longer. He knew that anyway, was perfectly aware of it, and had factored it into both his very specious reasons for coming here and his very general plans regarding what to do when they got here. But he's been distracted. He made that run yesterday, and that was good, and he made it back, and that was even better, but there are still things he's running the risk of neglecting. Still things he can't afford to let slip through the cracks. They should have fresh meat, and if he can find fresh greens of any kind, even better. This is yet another thing he can do, another thing on which he can exert some kind of control, and he won't have to think about how it doesn't make any difference at all. Today, today maybe, if she seems stable enough, 
He stands in front of the counter and braces himself on it, cool granite, exquisitely polished, so smooth under his hands that it feels almost slick, and he closes his eyes and breathes. He can smell the syrup in the cocktail, awful saccharine with a cutting edge, and it makes his mouth hurt. If she seems stable enough. That's hilarious. If she seems stable enough, it won't mean anything, because yesterday she seemed pretty stable until she started trying to bite her own fingers off. But it's what he has to go on. And it can't be nothing. It can't be. If he allows it to be nothing, he's already given up. He's already failed her. He pushes himself away from that gleaming, slippery granite and rummages through a drawer for a couple of spoons. When she came in yesterday morning from her little ritual, so it seems to be, she seemed almost chipper, and the same is true now. She's moving lightly, easily, as if she's more present in her own body. Her lips are curved into something that could, with some work, become a genuine smile. She's almost, almost, completely focused. Of the girl the night before, the girl writhing and screaming as if she was being electrocuted, the girl after, the girl gone all cold and hard inside and begging him to lie to her and tell her she was safe. There's no sign. She sits down at the table at the same moment he puts the bowl in front of her, and before he's seated across from her, she's already gone to work, feeding the machine, ingesting the calories that will keep her running with her eyes half-closed and barely a pause to chew. It's fruit cocktail. It's a bowl of mushy things that used to be fruit floating around in sugar. She basically doesn't have to chew. He's not that surprised to discover that it doesn't even really disturb him anymore how she does it. If anything, she's rubbing off on him. He doesn't want to taste what he's eating anyway, but even if he did, he's not sure he'd be able to get much out of that particular realm of sensory input. She's right. It's all just calories. They've both been here. Maybe that's why it's easy. He cleans up. He cleans the scratches on his arm. He looks at himself in the mirror for a long moment. He considers asking her about Gorman. He considers it for about ten seconds and dismisses it out of hand. It doesn't take genius-level reasoning to conclude that Gorman, whatever or whoever that is, isn't a place he wants her to go back to. Not if he wants to have a prayer of being able to handle her for the rest of the day, and he's still hoping she'll be steady enough for him to rationalize at least a couple hours of hunting. He was gone for an hour yesterday, and she was fine. She'd even made some progress on her own, if what she scrawled across page after page of the journal was progress, and he's more than prepared to consider it that. Hell, maybe him leaving her alone for a while is a good thing. But there are things he needs to take care of first. Things with her. She's gone back to the sofa with the secret garden, and is curled up at one end, legs drawn in close. Once again, she seems to be shrinking into her t-shirt, and as he comes toward her, his attention locks oddly on a scab on the top of her left knee. Nothing self-inflicted, as far as he can tell. It looks as if she took a fall, skinned it. Hardly at all. Just the kind of minor thing that might happen for any number of perfectly innocuous reasons. But there is something about it that makes him abruptly and profoundly uneasy. And he's fucked if he knows why. He crouches in front of her, takes a chance and touches her knee, lays his hand over the scab, slightly rough against his palm. She lifts her gaze from the book and looks at him, eyes huge and dark and awful, surrounded by a pale, scarred face he's finding difficult to look at. Sometimes he can deal with her scars, and sometimes they break him open. And then there are the times that fall right in between. 
He mutes those soul-boring eyes and keeps his own steady. Somehow. You should get a shower. She cocks her head. Why? Because we've been here almost four days and he ain't had one since we left. Four days. To remind her, to give her some kind of context for this. To try to moor her in some way to the time through which she's moving. To moor himself. Because, if he's honest, he's starting to feel slightly unmoored. She shifts her gaze away from him again, down to the page in front of her. He's being dismissed. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It doesn't. She jerks her head up, teeth bared, and just for a sliver of a second he sees that girl again, the one with blazing eyes, the one who hissed and snarled and tore at his arm, and who might have torn out his throat if she wanted to. You stupid fucking idiot, it doesn't matter. When are you going to get that? It's the word that throws him. Not her tone, not her expression, not the content of what she's saying. The word, the one word he says countless times a day, and can't think of a single time he's ever heard it pass her lips. It shouldn't shake him. It does. It shakes him to his bones. Because you're dead, he says softly. You still don't believe me. I can see you breathing. You're seeing what you want to see. I can feel it, Beth. All at once he's frantic and is quiet, contained, a tight coil of desperation winding tighter and tighter around the clenched fist of his heart. He lifts his hand from her knee and reaches for her wrist, catches it, holds it, and she sucks in a hard breath and tugs, but not as hard as she would if she was really intent on fighting him, and it knots his throat, and he couldn't let go of her even if he tried. He holds her wrist, turns it upward. He can see it. She can see it. Her left wrist, naked. She didn't bring any bracelets with her. She didn't bring any jewelry at all. It's all gone, left behind when they ran. All her pretty things, everything she held on to in the middle of so much ugliness, just gone. But now there's this. It's right here. He lays his thumb over the fine blue tracery of her veins, over the thin white line that slashes across them. Beneath it a flutter, running and tumbling over itself. He thinks of a little bird in a cage far too small. I can feel it. You can too. You're going to tell me that ain't real? You didn't feel it before. He can't breathe. In his mind, he falls back before her. He cringes, crumples inward. There's no possible way his bones can continue to support him, hollow as they are. Those five words, she had to find them and use them, and he didn't even know she knew. Didn't know she had any idea. If Edwards told her, or if she somehow remembers, and he can't even think about that. Oh, my girl, please, no, 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 please don't. Please. He knew she was violent. He knew she was dangerous. He didn't know she was cruel. Beth, you left me. Chipped ice, eyes, voice. She pulls her wrist free and he releases her with nerveless fingers, and somehow she manages to inject the full weight and force of all her contempt in a single tilt of her head. I was dead, so you left me. So I'm dead now. So it doesn't matter. She looks down at the book again, arms wrapped around herself. Get the fuck away from me. He doesn't move. He's not disobeying her. He can't. He literally can't. He stares at her, and he would swear that yes, yes, his heart is no longer beating. There was more. Why don't you remember the rest of it? They practically had to drag me away, almost dislocated my fucking arms, and I was screaming. I would have stayed with you. I would have. 
I didn't care. I would have stayed. I didn't want to, he whispers, and it has all the life of a drought wind. But you did. She doesn't look up. She doesn't say anything else. At last he manages to find his feet, turns, walks away from her into light so bright it burns his eyes. Except that's not really why they're burning. He goes out on the deck, and he leans over, looks down at that rough gray jet where he saw the glass explode. It's glittering now, and it wasn't before. Various parts of the cliff face directly below possess that kind of glitter, faint but unmistakable, lingering glass dust from where the things pulverized themselves. He stares, until the reason for the burning in his eyes transferred from what happened back in there to what he's seeing now, and the wind rushing up and drying him out. She was happy when she came in after doing this. Happy after her fashion, happy in the only vague way she seems to be capable of now. It made her happy to watch those pretty things destroyed. And they are pretty, or they were. Even if he doesn't like them, even if they make him uneasy, to someone they probably were pretty, and he can see how someone would think so. Black and cold and shiny like beetles, but graceful and swooping clean lines, darkly elegant. She breaks these things, and she takes a great deal of satisfaction in it, and he doesn't understand why, but he thinks about her cruelty, the cruelty he now knows is there, and he fights back a shiver. Then he realizes there's no reason to do so, and he goes ahead and shivers. Across the chasm, unseen and some immeasurable distance away, a bird screams, a raptor, bird of prey, something big, something lethal. She didn't want to hurt him because he was some vague, unnamed, and faceless threat, or because he was in her way and he was of no consequence. She wanted to hurt him because he's him, and she knows him, and she knows exactly where all his softnesses are, his unprotected underbelly, and she knows exactly where and how to stab. She has so much ammunition. He gave her so much. He spent days upon days giving her weapons she could use against him if she wanted to. He willingly put them in her hands. He disarmed. He did this because he trusted her more than he has ever trusted anyone, and because he had to. Because it was that or endless cold war. Not with everyone else, but with himself. He gave her his arsenal because he believed without question that she would never turn the guns on him. He's an idiot. And if he had to do it over again, knowing what he does now, he wouldn't change a thing. But all at once, no idea how much later, he gazed down at the rock until his eyes slipped out of focus and the wind massaged his skin into cool numbness. She's there behind him, touching his arm, and he jerks and has a sudden vision of her grabbing him with astonishing and yet not unexpected strength and shoving him over the railing to break on the rocks, her last thing destroyed. He turns, breathing hard and trying not to, trying not to let her see it if he can't stop himself. And she's looking up at him with perfect, level placidity, her eyes wide and expression flat in a way he now recognizes as her normal baseline, the midpoint from which she moves up or down. The coldly vicious girl who sent him out here is gone. Except she's not. She's in there. She's crouched, coiled, waiting for another chance to strike at him. The water's too cold. He blinks at her, completely nonplussed. It seems like a total non-sequitur, floating in mid-air, unattached to anything she said or will say. 
She looks back at him and appears to be waiting for something. Nothing else to offer. She doesn't even seem that invested. The words are his to pick up or leave there. But then he gets it, and his heart rockets into his throat because it means she put the book down and got off that fucking couch and she at least tried for him. She didn't do it, but she went up to the bathroom and she gave it a shot. And now that he looks at her, the edges of one side of her hair are the slightest bit dark, damp. She leaned in to test the water, and she didn't like it, so she stopped. That's okay. That's absolutely fucking okay. For now, he'll consider himself more than satisfied. Water heater ain't working. It's too cold, she repeats, shaking her head. I can't. As if she wants him to fix it. Make it so she can. He scrambles, flails around for an idea like he's backed into a corner and needs to come up with a way out or he'll be eaten alive. He can't just leave it there, after all. He needs to do something about it, because every chance like this he gets is endlessly precious. Heat. Yes. What about if you did it in front of the fire? She cocks her head. Little brain-damaged bird. Clearly confused. Tonight, he says gently. I got a fire going. Get you a towel and some water. You can wash off in front of it, where it's warmer. Better than nothing. It sounds pathetic in his own ears, wheedling. But she frowns slightly, looks thoughtful, and finally nods. Okay. Okay. He tears his eyes away from her, glances back at the world. The sun is high. It's just afternoon. This is a chance, yes. Maybe a good one. Take advantage. Miss it, and you might not get another one for a while. Christ, he wants to believe she's getting better. And maybe she even is. But he can't let himself. Can't throw that much of himself into the certainty beyond hoping. If he does, he drops his guard even more than he already has. I'm gonna go hunting. That all right? No hesitation. She nods again. But she's also not focused on him anymore. And as he watches, she steps past him to the railing and lays her hands on the smooth, dark wood. Like before, like the morning, the wind lifts her hair and the sun pours into it, bathes her face and neck and arms in a glow that seems to shimmer, and she's not a Greek nymph, but an angel carved into a cathedral pillar, distant and unearthly, and so beautiful that all at once he wants to drop to his knees. I thought I'd get wings, she murmurs, after. I thought we'd all get wings and fly up to God. Isn't that stupid? But I did. All those pictures, all that bullshit in Sunday school. We'd all be together again. Jesus handing out hugs like Santa Claus. Smug asshole. It's her. Her soft, sweet voice. But once again the words aren't her at all, and they burn into him, sizzle through his eardrums. On their worst days together, starving and exhausted and sick to numbness with loss, she never talked like this. He did, when he talked at all, and she made him want to stop, even if he could. Please don't. Girl, please. Thought I'd get wings, she says, echoing out over the sheer cut of stone and the trees falling away below. You already had them, and they didn't save you. You're here with me. Probably wouldn't have mattered. She closes her eyes. I knew you'd go to hell, everything you've done. Striking striking like a viper, digging in her fangs and pumping her venom. And he stands there beside and behind her with his eyes and ears and skin on fire, and he takes it. How she softly, gently, sweetly tearing him apart, 
because she can. At least you're with me, she whispers, lids still delicately closed, her lashes long against the ridge of bone beneath her eye. At least I'm not alone. You're not alone, he breathes, echoes with hers, and he has no idea how the fuck he says anything at all. No. She swings back to him, sudden and swift, eyes open and hooking cool blue barbs into his. If you're going hunting, I'm going with you. But... Inside his head, he stumbles back, pressing against the rear wall of his cranium. No, of course she would want that. He left her behind last time, and she accepted it, and she didn't hurt herself, at least not while he was gone. But he could tell she wasn't happy about it. Probably for a whole multitude of hopelessly complex reasons that not even she fully understands. He can't tell her no. But... You sure? He shifts his feet, unable to keep back the unease. She would see it anyway. She could always see through him, and he has every reason to know that's still the case. I mean, you think you can... I'm going with you or I'm cutting my wrists open, she says calmly. And when you get back, you'll have all that blood to clean up. Is that what you want? Not that she'll be dead. Of course she's not threatening that. In her mind, a dead girl's mind, she's merely threatening massive inconvenience. But it makes no fucking difference. She knew she would have him with that, pin him to the fucking wall like a bug... And she does. And she has. She's getting better, sure. Maybe. Getting sharper, less helpless. He still looks at her and sees a child. Hates it. Wants to claw that vision out of himself because it's so wrong and it's so unworthy of her. But he can't just see a child. Whatever else happens. Because if she's getting sharper and that cruelty is in her, she'll know exactly how to hurt him instead of herself. And she won't need to do it with weapons or teeth or fingernails. All she'll need to do is talk. He thought he would be able to keep trying to save her, even if she was trying to kill him. He actually thought that. He was actually that stupid. That unimaginative. And he was getting all grimly self-satisfied down there in the town about how many people have been killed by their own lack of imagination. He thought he would be able to keep trying to save her. And he fucking will. Well... He will not, under any circumstances, give her a gun. But in that pack, the one he's hidden, is something else. The one thing in there that he desperately hoped he would be able to pull out and use, because he never thought he would ever get the chance. Thought he would bear that burden until the world finally sent him to her. He steps away from her and turns, nods toward the door, standing open. All right, but you're going to need something. Come on. Not sure how he wanted to do this. Not sure how he would ever, ever have wanted to do it. But he will, and he'll drag whatever he can out of it, because she's here and alive. And even if she doesn't believe he is, her pulse thrums strong and hot under his fingers when he touches her. He can give this back to her, and he doesn't have to carry it any longer. And if she chooses to use it like he fears she will, it still won't matter. Because if she's going to do it, if she's going to fucking do it, if she's really that determined, she'll find a way. He has her wait on the sofa while he goes to the pantry. This, one of his weird, semi-pointless fumblings in an attempt to keep some kind of bad joke of a handle on safety, not letting her see where he's hidden it. And really, he thinks, as he bends and wedges his hand between the wine rack and the far wall, grabs the pack and pulls it free, it's not even about the gun. It's not about that at all. Not about any of what she might do with any of what's in there. She's insane, but she's not stupid. 
She'll see them, the drugs, the syringes, the restraints and the rope, and she'll know instantly why he has them, what they're for. And if she trusts him at all now, she never will again. None of that matters. He can lie to himself, he's so good at it, and tell himself that none of it will be necessary. He lays the pack down and kneels on the cold floor in front of it, unzips it. It's right that he should kneel for this, for what he lifts out and holds in his hands, cradles, gently, lovingly, because for over half a year, it was all he had of her. He took it off after it became clear what he and Aaron were dealing with. It didn't seem like a good idea to keep wearing it, like it might set her off somehow in a way none of them would be able to control, or that was what he told himself. That was the more comfortable reason. The real one, he suspects, is that he took it off because he simply couldn't keep it on. Couldn't do it. Keep a dead girl's knife on his belt when she was right in front of him, breathing and warm, and insisting that she was still dead. So he kept it. Because he was going to give it back to her when she was well. He was going to go to her and she would know him, and she would know herself, and he would give it to her and not have to say anything, but he kept it for her that he would have kept it forever, and he's so, so glad he doesn't have to keep it anymore. And she would take it from him, and look at him, understand everything he wasn't saying, smile at him, touch his face with her smooth, cool fingers. Thank you. He closes his hands around the knife's soft, worn sheath, and squeezes his eyes shut. This is not how it was supposed to be. but it is how it is. He comes back to her, across the room, stops in front of her and looks down, the knife at his side. She looks up at him, blinking slowly, docile again, calm, almost bovine. He's not fooled for a fucking second. It might not be affected what he's seeing, it might be genuine. He doesn't want to believe that she has enough guile and enough mad shrewdness to purposefully trick him like that. But that cruel girl, that viper, she's still down there. At some point between yesterday and this morning, that girl woke up, and he doesn't think she's going back to sleep. He senses that she intends to stick around. This isn't what he's heard termed multiple personalities. At least, he doesn't think so. She's aware of what goes on, on some level, all the time. Every single one of these girls is Beth. But she's fragmented. She's been shattered and he can't be sure of anything anymore. All he can do is hold on. Once again, he drops into a crouch in front of her and holds up the knife, handle and tip balanced on his fingers. He doesn't speak, doesn't, and can't, gaze frozen on her face, and she stares at it, no sign of comprehension in those wide, glassy eyes. Then she blinks again, and something clicks back there, and she takes it in her hand, curls her fingers around it, unsheathes it, turns it, her suddenly sharp attention moving up and down the blade. Mine, she whispers, and he gasps. Can't help it. Can't help anything. He clenches his hands into trembling fists, and there's no indication at all that she's even aware of him anymore. She runs a fingertip up the edge, and he's sure he's going to see blood well. But none does. Her focus snaps back to him, still sharp. For hunting? He nods. He can do that. He can nod and he can talk and he can adopt the pretense of being a functional human being capable of communicating with other human beings. He can do so very convincingly. He's had almost a year of practice. He ain't going out there unarmed. 
I'll be safe. I'll be with you. I'll keep you safe. I don't need you to keep me safe. She's looking at the knife again, thoughtful, pressing the point lightly against the pad of her thumb. I'm the thing everything else is afraid of. He has nothing to say to that. He knows what she means, and he doesn't want her to clarify, doesn't want to hear it again, but he also can't argue. He is afraid. He's terrified of her, of her and for her, so unbearably and monstrously afraid. But he does have something to say, because this isn't how it was supposed to be. None of this is how it was supposed to be. But she also wasn't supposed to be alive, and whatever else is going on in the scatter of jagged glass shards that is her mind, she is alive, and she's right here. And last night, she let him hold her, reached for him and held on. And when he curled his arms around her, she settled against him and slept, warm, breathing, heart beating. She's not dead. She's alive. That's all that matters. I kept it for you, he whispers. After. Carol gave it to me. I kept it. Beth, I... And that's all he has. He never expected to have to say anything at all. She's looking at him, still holding the knife, fingers now wrapped around the handle, but looking at him, clear and present, and impossible to read. He meets that beautiful, terrible gaze as long as he can, and then he drops his eyes away, face briefly twisting, knowing that she'll see, and knowing that if she wants to strike at him, he just rolled over and exposed his throat and belly, and he sharpened her fangs. Touch on his face, his cheek, smooth, cool. He shudders, sudden and hard, and jerks his eyes back up to her. And she's looking down at him, fingers stroking across the ridge of his cheekbone, and all he wants in this world, or any fucking other, is to lower his head into her lap and sob. She knows. Oh, God, she knows. Thank you, she says softly, lays the knife down and frames his face with her gentle, merciful hands, tilts his head up and leans in, and presses her lips to his brow. And when he gives up and lets the tears come, shaking in her hands, she carefully wipes them away. So, yeah, burn. Okay, I need to intro this by telling you a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I am once again doing what I did before. I am reading this totally cold. Uh, or mostly cold, because the other thing I need to tell you is that this chapter is long enough that in order to make this episode a reasonable length and also to spare my poor goddamn voice, I'm actually cutting it in half. Uh, which is somewhat awkward because in the middle or at least towards the middle, there's really no place that is a clean, reasonable place to break off. So I'm doing the best I can. I apologize for the awkwardness. The reason I'm not reading this 100% totally clean is because I had to do at least some skimming. Although I did it with like, you know, I was like mostly trying to cover my eyes, not, you know, literally, but figuratively. I had to do some skimming in order to find some kind of place where it made any sense at all to stop. So, I'm not doing exactly what I did before, but I am trying to do it as close to that as I can. So, you are hearing me read this with 99% no foreknowledge 
of what I'm reading, except in the second that you hear me reading it. I, and I'm, again, going to continue to do that for as long as this fic continues, which I really enjoy and I think is really fun. All right, so here we go. Burn by the Vampire Cat Chapter 5 The Lion's Den, Part 2 Even in the bad light, he can see his blood staining the carpet, can watch as it falls, red and thick, a broken, glistening rope of gore stretching from the bite mark on his arm to the pale gray pile at his feet. It doesn't drip so much as it plops. He's not sure why that distinction is important to him, but it is. And it's stupid. He knows it's stupid. So this is it, he thinks. This is how it ends. He makes a half-hearted attempt to pretend he has options, pretend there are solutions. The truth is there isn't. The truth is he already knows how this ends. And strangely, he's not emotional about it. Not at all. There's an acceptance, a relief, even. The knowledge that it'll all be over soon is both liberating and terrifying. But then again, when was liberty ever comfortable? His plan is simple. He'll put down whatever is in this room, alive or undead, whatever the case may be. He'll drive back to Beth, leave the meds on the doorstep, leave the car, and then check out. Put a bullet through his brain. One, two, three. Clean and simple. Bang. You're dead. He doesn't like that, though. Doesn't like the idea of actually pulling the trigger, holding the barrel of a gun to his mouth so that he tastes the steel, feels the metallic cold on the inside of his cheeks and then finding the courage to actually end it all. He really doesn't like that idea, and it makes him briefly wonder if he could find an axe of some sort, a machete maybe, and chop off the arm. He wonders if the poison is already too far gone, if he'd even be in time to stop the infection. He doesn't know. They cut off Herschel's leg immediately, but they hadn't had to do anything like that since. Who knows, maybe he should try. He could do it. If Merle could chop off his own hand, cauterize the wound, and then drive a fucking car to God knows where, there ain't no reason why his baby brother can't do it, too. He is, after all, a tough son of a bitch. But then he wonders, once again, clearly, calmly, if this is wise. If the infection has spread, and he loses a limb, and somehow gets back to Beth, what does that mean? That she'll have to put him down if he wasn't fast enough? Is that fair? Could she even do it? He thinks she could. He's not sure what would happen if the positions were reversed, though. He watched Sophia be put down, put Merle down himself. Could he lose Beth that way, too? Lose her and still stay sane? If he was the one that had to do it? He doesn't think so. He really doesn't think so. But worse than that is the thought of her alone. Or her with whoever took her. Her with Joe and the rest. That's bad. He doesn't want that. He really doesn't want that. He chances a glance out of the window. There's a garden shed outside, dilapidated, but there might be an axe in there. If he can get out of this room, that is. If he can escape whatever nightmare is waiting in the shadows. He curses inwardly to stupidity, at his reticence from earlier, how he hadn't seen this thing coming. Hadn't seen it because he was standing there like a fish out of the water, gaping at the fucking writing on the wall, breathing in the walker fumes that made him one of wretch, running through the scenarios in his head of how this little tableau before him came to be. Tableau, says Merle. 
That's a fancy word for you, little brother. A real fancy word. That's what happens when you hang around fancy girls. You go and get all highfalutin, forget your roots. And then that thing, that thing of bones and nightmares, had knocked him to the ground. It was small, feral, all limbs and hair and screeches that chilled him to the bone and simultaneously got the walkers riled up so that they snapped at the air, groaned and gurgled from their makeshift prison on the bed. He hadn't seen a face, but the smell was enough. Foul, rancid, decayed. Yeah, maybe he could think of a few more fancy choice words if he tried. He'd lifted an arm to fend it off, and that's when the teeth sunk in, hard and sharp, and a fetid gust of breath had gone into his nostrils, his mouth, down his throat, making him want to gag. He'd hit out with the crossbow, the side glancing off the thing's head before it scuttled back into the shadows, into its cave, its hole, its nest. A shape in the darkness, a bad dream. The monster under your bed. He'd stood up, backed up against the wall, listening to it scuttle about, its labored breathing, the clicking of two long nails loud on the tiles of the ensuite, which smelled of shit and death and terror. And then it went quiet. When he was a boy, about eleven or twelve, and before his old man burnt all his ma's books to cinders, he'd nicked one off the shelf, one she told him not to read because it was too scary. But he'd take it anyway. A book about giant killer rats that came out of the sewers after a nuclear fallout. Rats bigger than honey badgers and just as vicious. They crept up from the London underground into the radiation zone and feasted on whatever flesh they could find. They were the walkers of that world, and the story scared him to death when he read it. He wonders now if the book was that far-fetched, or if he really is facing down some giant rodent that's crawled its way up from the sewers and decided to feast on his arm. He shakes his head. Ain't got no time for thinking about the past. Ain't got no time for trashy books and his ma and any other shit that ain't going down in this room. Gotta think about the now. Think about how you're gonna move. How you're gonna get out of here and salvage what you can of your miserable existence. And Beth's magnificent one. He stills. Stills his body and his mind, forcing himself to concentrate, straining for something other than the grunting of the dead. At first there's nothing, but he waits, imagining he's tracking a deer, listening to and then blocking the sounds of the forest, waiting for that whisper across the forest floor, the gentle crunch of autumn leaves. And then he hears it, hears it under the bed, hears it slipping to the dresser, to the ensuite, near the nightstand. Clear as a fucking bell. Its movements tell him it's not a walker. Not yet, at least. But the sight of it, the smell of it, the stink of infection tells him all he needs to know. He just doesn't know what that means. What it means if you're bitten by someone infected but not turned. He doesn't know. They never thought about that back at the prison. There were a lot of things they didn't think about. He looks at his arm again, shaking the blood off it. It's slippery and it makes it difficult to hold the crossbow. His right arm great, because you know he didn't need that one. After all, he has another. Another that's still a bit dicky because a guy went to town on it with a fucking tire iron. But hey, he likes a challenge. Fuck, he thinks again. Fuck, fuck, fuck. After all this, all this shit, losing his family, losing the prison, losing Beth, and then finding her again, and now he's gonna have to check out after all. Just when he started to put things back together. Another one of those cosmic jokes, J.C., he wonders. The fucking dude with the suicide issues has to put himself down. Ain't that a laugh? Working in your mysterious ways again? Having fun, are you? Making fun while I leave my girl alone in this hellhole you and your pops created? He's glad Beth isn't here to hear his thoughts. He knows it would upset her. Blasphemy always does. 
but he guesses it doesn't matter now. Guesses it won't matter for much longer anyway. Now that he has to leave and all. You can't leave, Beth, his ma says. You better leave, Beth, Merle answers. What the fuck happens when you turn on her? What the fuck happens when you try and eat her? <laughs> what a joke, says his old man. You're going to eat her out before you get to eat her out. Yeah, his old man was always a dick. He bites his lip as he hears the thing tumble across the floor again. He thinks it's hiding behind the couch across from the bed. Yeah, these rich fucks had a fucking lounge in their bedroom. Probably took tea here in the morning while some harried, underpaid woman waited on them hand and foot. Nice for some, he thinks. Really fucking nice for some. Turning slightly, he aims vaguely at the ostentatious chaise. He can't see shit, and if he shoots something and misses it, he won't have time to reload. Crossbows may be good for stealth, but there's shit for speed and really shit for confined spaces like this. He thinks he sees a shadow dart to the coffee table. Thinks, but can't be sure, because his mind is playing tricks on him now, and his thoughts are so jumbled that he's not sure he knows anything other than the overwhelming urge to run screaming from the room and back to Beth, to curl himself around her body, hold her tight and close, and breathe her in until he either chokes or drowns in her. He doesn't care which. Because there ain't no better way to go than that. There just ain't. Maybe it's the thought of her. The idea that he could get back to her one last time before he goes. Before he checks out. Or maybe it's just the decayed smell of the walkers and the desire to leave that behind that kicks him into action. But he turns, deliberately, slowly, eyes scanning the shadows. You want to come the fuck out? He says into the dark room, making the walkers hiss, making his blood pound making the world too small and too tight and too rotten. Nothing. Apparently, it doesn't want to come the fuck out. No matter, then. Each to his own and all that. He's not sure what he really expected, though. That it would give up, crawl out from whatever mess it was hiding under, and show itself to him. Hey, Daryl, here I am. Want to shoot me? That'd be awesome. He guesses he'd hoped so. Guesses hope is dumb. Guesses it only works for people like Beth people who deserve it. The rest of them just have to take their chances with luck. Daryl Dixon ain't that lucky. Never was. No Dixon was that lucky, says Merle. Except you, says his ma. You got Beth. You got the blue-eyed girl, and that's the luckiest thing in the world. He doesn't know why his ma needs to be such an old sap. Why she has to come up with her romance novel bullshit now. Now when he's bit and about to go and get himself killed. Not when it's all coming crashing down. And any hope he has is busy swirling around the toilet bowl of his head. But she does. She could always pick her moments, his ma. He glances back at the bed. The male walker has managed to pull a hand out of the bonds and it's flailing towards him. He notices it only has two fingers on that hand. Looks like it's permanently flipping someone off, and he feels hysterical laughter bubbling in his chest. Ain't no call for laughter now. Ain't nothing funny about this situation. Nothing at all. He looks at the wall again, at the dried blood, at the thick trails of blood. Fact is, that scares him a shitload more than whatever the fuck is going down in this room. That Joe and the rest could be wandering around here somewhere, close to them, close to her, getting ready to take him out, take her and make her pay for Lynn and Dan. He can't live through that again. He won't. The thought of Beth alone with them, with those fuckers he thought he could run with. Those fuckers that seemed to rise from the ashes of the burning cabin. A last-ditch attempt to claim him back. He shouldn't have even entertained it. As if somehow it made them more real because he accepted it. Because he let them in. Into him. 
and of Beth. Because he was so fucking scared of being alone, he gave life to his ghosts, and now they're coming back to haunt him. Him and Beth, and... He stops. He needs to be sharp. Sharp for whatever comes next. And this, this claimed nonsense above the bed, well, this sure as shit ain't helping. Sure as God made little green apples, as his ma used to say when she was trying to be sober and cute, when she was trying to make up for a lifetime of sins as a mother in a few teetotaling days. So he tells himself to calm the fuck down, breathe slow and deep, and look at your fucking options instead of lurching around from one half-baked plan to another. And for the first time in weeks, months maybe, he feels like a cigarette. He doesn't like to smoke around Beth, especially now that she's sick, but the truth is that he hasn't felt the need in a while now, even though there was a stash in Mr. Dude Bros. Yeah, it's the end of the world, and Daryl Dixon has stopped smoking. Gotta worry about your health and all. That's for spitting jaw when your old lady tells you to stop smoking. The thought doesn't comfort him. Not at all. In fact, it pisses him off because it's from before. Before, when he was just being him. Obstinate. Obdurate. Childish. And just plain fucking ridiculous. Time wasted. Time wasted hating her, resenting her for being alive, wishing that he was with anyone but her, her, the daughter of the man he'd failed to protect, her with her hope, her dreams, her goodness, her with her blonde hair and her pretty blue eyes. And now all he wants is to be with her. He doesn't care how anymore. Never did, actually. She's always been more forward, more brazen, and he suddenly realizes that even if he does make it back to her, that last kiss he gave her on that ratty couch in that ratty room in that ratty house will be the last kiss he ever gives her. Because there ain't no way he's taking a chance with her. Ain't no way he'll pass this infection on to her. Give her his death. He realizes then just how much he wants her. Wants them. And maybe, because he's about to die... He's okay with admitting he wants Beth Green more than he's ever wanted anything his whole life. Fuck! He can't help it, and he shouts it out at nothing in particular. The walkers moan and gurgle in response, and he eyes them coolly, angrily. Fuckers. Dirty, smelly fuckers. He reaches for his knife. May as well get this over with, at least. May as well end this. Give him something to do anyway while he waits for old Fairy Lightfoot to show itself and stop flitting around the room like a fucking June bug on steroids. He thinks he'll just make it quick for both of the walkers. A short, sharp jab to the head. Nothing fancy. Daryl Dixon is done with fancy. Or, you know, you could use what you have, little brother, says Merle. I mean, I ain't saying your idea ain't grand, but there's a move here. If you weren't so whipped, you'd have seen it. Yeah, trust Merle to see it. Trust Merle to see the manipulation. The angle. It's good, though. Easy. Uncomplicated. Enough with the carrot. Time to use the stick. He turns away from the security of the wall at his back, sheathing the knife again. He's slow, deliberate, knows he's being watched, as he exposes his back to whatever's waiting. He wants to cover his nose, but he doesn't. Okay, sunshine, he calls, taking a step to the bed, lowering the crossbow so that it's aimed at the male walker's forehead. A kill shot. An easy one. You come out now, or one of your friends is going to get a bolt through the head, he draws, putting as much redneck as he can into his voice. Come on, I can see you tried to keep him nice and comfortable here. Must mean something to you. Silence is his only answer. It was a gamble anyway, hoping that whoever is looking after them was like Herschel, unable to let go, unable to accept the inevitable. It's odd, but maybe because he's bit, he doesn't actually have that fear boiling over in his belly anymore. Like somehow now that the worst has happened, he's got his swagger back, 
found a semblance of place again, of himself. That's not to say everything's hunky-dory. The situation he's put himself in is beyond fucked up. The resulting situation for Beth even worse, no matter how this goes down. But in a way, it's a relief. The other shoe's dropped, and now he just has to find a way to wear it. Okay, he says conversationally as he takes aim. My daddy always told me warning shots were a waste of arrows. That was true, he did. He also used to say, if you're going to shoot, don't talk. But Daryl chooses to ignore that as he eases his finger onto the trigger. He waits a moment, like he taught Beth. Finger on the trigger, square your hips, take a breath, and exhale as you squeeze. And that's when he feels movement behind him, a footfall gliding over the filthy carpet. Soft, dainty almost. A chill runs down his spine, tickling his bones, his sinew, his muscle. He holds still dead still, even as the hair rises on the back of his neck, as every nerve ending tingles. The smell, musty, dank, hits him at the same time as the voice. It's low, cracked, female. Stop. Stop, please. He freezes, blood turning to ice as he stands there, oozing walkers in front of him, God knows what behind him. Swing and shoot, shouts Merle. If you're gonna shoot, don't talk, says his old man. Yeah, funny old man. Funny. Good advice, and you know it, Merle whispers. Yeah, it is, but he ain't gonna take any of it. Instead, he moves the bow slightly, a gesture of goodwill more than anything else, because he can still get a headshot from this angle. I'm gonna turn around now, he says, and I ain't gonna hurt you. But if you try anything, I'm gonna shoot, and I'm a good shot. Between you and your friends here, someone will get it. None of the last part is true. Ain't no way he can shoot and turn and hit the mark at the same time, but he just hopes whatever is standing behind him doesn't know it. If you swing right, you can get her, says Merle. Right between the eyes, says his old man. Find out if she's bit, says his ma, before you do anything. Funny, that's the last time he's considered that. Finding out. The actual possibility that he could make it out alive, that he might be able to go back to Beth and stay, not unscarred, not untainted just alive. A spark of hope. And that pretty much kills him on the spot. Because, as he said, Dixon and Hope, those two just don't go together. For the millionth time, he curses himself for coming inside here. There's no good reason to do it. Really no good reason. A teenager on a drunken dare to piss in the headmaster's hot tub or snap Polaroids of Junie Day through her fancy-ass Roswell windows while she blow-dried her red hair and nothing but a slip that didn't cover her ass. He'd never done it, though. That was the crowd Merle ran with, not him. He'd always been a loner, always on the outside, the periphery. A bit like Beth when he thinks about it. He turns. His heart breaks, and he almost wants to die. It's not a rat, not a monster, not a demon. Nothing of the sort. It's a girl or what once could have called itself a girl. Small, waifish, terrifying, and heartbreaking. It's bad of him, he knows, but the first thing he does is ask if she's bit, even though he should ask why she's so thin and so frail and so filthy. Why she smells worse than the dead. Why she looks like one of them, even though she's not. He expects a yes, maybe a show of her bite, a glimpse of feverish eyes. But she shakes her head, tells him no in that strange, weak, raspy voice. He plays the beam of his flashlight over her to be sure, and she seems to wither under it, as if this has happened before. 
as if she's been scrutinized under harsh lights by scary men on cold, windy nights prior to this one. She ain't bit. He makes her pull up her sleeves, turn around to check her back, but isn't about to ask her to undress, so decides to believe her when she assures him that she's not infected, despite how she looks, despite the smell of her. He tries not to let the relief force him to his knees. He only just succeeds. They do buckle, though, buckle hard and fast, and the thought of seeing Beth again and not having to leave her, maybe getting to hold her again, lay a kiss, gentle, or not so gentle, against her lips. Maybe stop being so nervous and jangly all the time. The girl is youngish, maybe a little older than Beth, although Beth has become timeless to him of late, so he can't be sure. She's small, too. Short. Shorter than Beth and skinnier. Some tight skin wrapped around bone. And she's filthy, covered in dirt and grime, hair matted and greasy. Her clothes, though, they don't look bad. Unbroken black jeans, a heavy black sweater, thick socks on her feet. She's trembling, though, but it ain't from the cold and her breath whistles out of her in a throaty hiss, which scares the shit out of him. She breaks his heart. She's so small and so frail and so frightened. He wonders how long she's been here, how she survived. Looking at the walkers, he can only guess that before they turned, they were her only source of protection. He suddenly wishes he'd found her before, when they lived at the prison, when they could have taken her in. Maybe her two friends, too. As an act of goodwill, he lowers the crossbow and asks if they can sit down. She nods silently and shifts to the couch, her movements oddly graceful. He hesitates for a second, wondering if he should actually make good on his suggestion before moving to the chair, the coffee table dividing them, the noise of the two bound walkers echoing in his ears. He takes a moment to observe her as she fidgets with her cuffs, stares at her socks. He glances back at the bed, at the grisly, dried, bloody writing above it. It's not hard to figure out what happened here. The question, though, is when. The question is how long has she lived here caring for the undead after the scourge of Joe and Len, Dan, Harley, and Tony washed over this house, this home? How long does he have to get home, to get Beth and get back on the road? Will she even go with him? He thinks she will in the end if he insists, but she'll put up a fight, a fight he stands every chance of losing. Thought you weren't nobody's bitch, says Merle. Yeah, he's Beth's bitch. He's okay with it, too, actually, he realizes all of a sudden. More than okay. There are worse things than being Beth Green's bitch. Pussy, says Merle. But he's okay with that, too. He puts the crossbow down on the floor next to him, slowly, deliberately, making sure she sees him, and then he holds out his hands, palms upwards. I'm Daryl, he says. Seems like a good enough place to start. Polite, unintrusive, like the old world. Who knows, maybe he could have sat here, alongside Beth, in another life, sipping iced tea and nibbling on fancy-ass sandwiches. Fitting in. Yeah, that's a joke. Daryl Dixon with his threadbare shirts and his scarred back, his knobbly knees and scruffy hair. Sitting here, engaging in polite conversation. Maybe discussing politics or theater. Who's he kidding? He didn't know how to do that in the old world any more than the new. He starts to wonder what life would have been like with a normal family, but stops himself before he falls down that rabbit hole. This ain't remotely the time. He glances back at the girl. She eyes him, brow furrowing, as if she's worried he's trying to trick her. Beatrice, she tells him, and for a moment he forgets that he introduced himself. People call... called... me Bessie. 
The feeling of deja vu comes fast, unexpected, and briefly he's overwhelmed in a memory he can't fathom, an image he can't see, a sound he can't hear, and it scares him on a primal level he can't even begin to explain and threatens to suck him in, down, away, and out to sea. His skin prickles with goose flesh, and his stomach lurches uncomfortably. Enough, he tells himself. Enough of this nonsense, this fear, this worry. Not everything has to mean something. Not everything is about him. In fact, so little of it is about him. He can figure it out later. They can figure out this puzzle, but not now, not in this dank room, walkers chorusing in the background, the smell of death everywhere, this waif, this urchin in front of him, feral and wild, and ready to tear him apart, should he put a foot wrong. Scared of a girl? asks Merle. Yeah, he's scared of a girl. Damn stupid not to be. All the girls he knows are fucking scary. She picks at her sleeves and he takes her in. The filth, the fear, the way she trembles with every move he makes. The haunted expression, mouth and teeth too big for her emaciated head. And suddenly he feels bad for coming in here, invading her space, trespassing into her home and frightening her. Even the anger at the tight pain in his arm ebbs. This is on him. All of it. Their eyes meet. Blue. Blue as Beth's, and his gut clenches to imagine that this could be her in another life. She doesn't look like Beth, though, and he's grateful for that. Really fucking grateful. And he feels like an asshole. A really fucking big asshole. And when she bites her lip in anticipation of his next move, he's suddenly at a loss, not sure what to do, what to say. He's not even sure he wants to take this on. Not sure he can take her on, her and her baggage, her pain, her history. Her walkers. This entire situation is so fucked up that none of his million questions make sense, no matter what the answers are. But then she starts to speak, and her voice is cold, emotionless. As Frank and Nolly, she points to the bed where the walkers spit and groan and stink. Well, her name's Leonora, but I always called her Nolly. She's my sister. He's my big brother. I miss my big brother, Sean. He was always so annoying and overprotective. Leonora. That memory pulls at him again, evading his racing mind by a hair's breadth, and the sound he makes in the back of his throat is noncommittal. She nods, though, short and sharp, businesslike, like he's got it, like he understands. But her eyes shimmer and her muscles tense, and he's suddenly scared she's going to leap across the table and take a bite out of him again. And as if it was waiting for its moment, the wound pulses angrily. He glances at it, blood dripping off his fingertips, crusting around his already dirty nails to stain the carpet like hazy brown dye. The walkers hiss, and he knows they can smell it. One of the big downsides of living in a world where the dead walk, your chances of being wounded are higher, and your chances of being sniffed out because of that wound almost a certainty. You better not be bit, girl, he says gruffly. I'm not, she answers. He grunts in response, and she seems to cave into herself, drawing away from him, eyes darting to the crossbow and then to the knife, Beth's knife, at his hip. Ain't gonna hurt you, he tells her again, but he can see she doesn't believe him. And suddenly he wishes more than anything that Beth was here. She'd know what to do, what to say. If there's one thing Beth knows, it's how to gentle people, how to temper them, how to hold them up when they're falling down. Yeah, he knows. He knows all too well. He thinks suddenly that he never thanked her. Never told her how much what she did at the cabin meant to him. Never told her that she kept him going, even when he knew he couldn't. He ain't gonna waste time anymore. Ain't gonna bottle those feelings away. Ain't gonna even try. This hiding in plain sight thing that he does with his emotions is for the birds. 
Beth knows. He knows she does. But all these resolutions aside, God, who'd have thought it was New Year for Daryl Dixon? He knows she'd be able to draw this girl, this Bessie, out, take her in, make her feel safe. Not like him. Him with his gruffness, his rage, his tough edges, and his harsh mouth. What's a nobody redneck know about this, anyway? He ain't a friend. He ain't on her side. Hell, he's more enemy than ally at this point. You can't have them, you know. Not again, she says. You can't claim them. They ain't yours. Neither am I. It's like she's reading his mind. Don't know why that's a surprise, though. Beth does it all the time. Does it so well he wonders if somewhere there's a teleprompter broadcasting his thoughts to her. Didn't realize he was so damn obvious. I ain't claiming nothing, he tells her gently. But either she doesn't hear him or it's not enough because she's suddenly standing and her voice is loud and shrill and the walkers gurgle hungrily at the sound. You're not going to do it again! I won't let you! She's already across the room before he's managed to stop her, quick and nimble, scuttling away like some unwelcome but evasive spider that you know is living under your dresser but you can never seem to quite catch to toss aside or squash as the feeling takes you. Bessie, wait, he says, standing as she hops onto the bed, balancing herself expertly between the tied legs of the two walkers, ignoring the groping arm of the male and ignoring the ravenous hisses they make. Bessie, come away there, he says, even as he can't bear to look at the bloodied writing above her head. I ain't gonna hurt you. She kneels, wedging herself between the rotten limbs, nesting almost, and he has a grisly thought that this is how she's been sleeping, passing her nights curled up between the putrefied flesh that was once her family. No wonder she smells so bad. It ain't just a case of not having washed for months. The stink of death and decay is in her skin, in her hair, in her breath. He wonders if it could ever come out, or if she herself is more walker than human already. Bile rises in the back of his throat, bitter and intense, and he needs to look away, shut his eyes for a moment while the disgust passes through him. "'Why are you here?' she asks, shuffling down, curling her arms around rotted ankles, ignoring the flailing hand near her hair. He has to admit it's a good question, one he's not sure he'll ever be able to answer, no matter what happens. "'You come back for more?' she asks. "'Why don't you just leave?' He wants to pull her away, but he knows if he takes a step toward her, she'll bolt. She might bite, and there's been all too much biting today already. So he just shakes his head. Bessie, I didn't do this to you. Not you, not Frank, not Lenora. Leonora, she corrects, and suddenly that memory, that untapped knowledge clawing at the edges of his clouded brain springs to the fore, punching him in the gut as hard as if it was Joe, Dan, and Harley, and their goddamn tire iron. Tony, imagine if it was Lenore. Or what if it was Betty? He hadn't thought much of it at the time. Maybe Joe was referring to a dead wife or sister, a girlfriend. Fact was, he'd been too buzzed to worry about it, too concerned with getting Beth as far away as he could, too worried about his arm and the blood clouding his vision and Beth's dead eyes. Never thought about who and why of it, the way Tony's jaw had hardened and how Dan's hands had twitched between his spread legs. They weren't talking about before weren't talking about a time when they were good men, men with homes and kids and families, and maybe a Labrador or two in the yard. Maybe they never were men like that. Probably not, judging from what he'd seen Len try with Beth. Those fuckers had done this. Hurt this girl, tortured her family, killed them, and left them to reanimate under the fucking logo of blood on the wall. Fuckers couldn't even remember their goddamn names right. Couldn't even be bothered to know who it was they were raping and pillaging. 
He knows the guilt he feels is unfounded. Knows he shouldn't feel this way. Knows it's not on him. It'll never be on him. But he can't help it. He wants to apologize, but knows he can't, because he thinks that'll scare her more, and that hand is so very close to her, almost touching her hair. How long ago were they here, Bessie? He asks, mouth dry, both dreading and craving the answer. She frowns, and he wonders if her mind has run off somewhere safe, if she's checked out, if he can even trust any answer she gives him. It was hot, she says eventually. It was hot the last time you were here. It wasn't me, Bessie, he says softly. I promise it wasn't me. But it could have been, says his old man. Could have so easily been you. You and your dicks and blood. Girl can't even tell the difference between you and them. She sees it. Why can't you, boy? You got away from it, says Beth. You did. I ain't like them, he tells her. Nolly wouldn't let them hurt me, she says, her voice a whisper, so soft he strains to hear it. Nolly said to take her, not me. So they did, and I hid, and I only came out when they were gone. The walker's two remaining fingers touch her back, and Daryl breathes in sharply as he has visions of her being ripped into the hungry maw. But something much worse happens. She shrugs slightly so that the hand moves and then turns to take it in her own, holding it tightly, rubbing her thumb across the dead palm and whispering words he can't quite hear. Words that sound tender and secretive and loving. The walker hisses, jerking towards her, but she pats its belly. It makes a noise that sounds like she's shushing it. It was hot, she says again, as if this is a new thought. Summer. He hates himself for the relief that rushes through him. That means it was at least five months ago, around the time the prison fell. They're long, long gone, or so he hopes. He's not sure how long they followed him and Beth once they got the car. It couldn't have been far. They drove for hours. No way they could have tracked them guys couldn't track for shit anyway. Don't you remember? She asks. Don't you remember what you did? I didn't do this, he says. I wasn't here. Where were you? She interrupts and curls herself grotesquely around her brother, resting her head on his belly, letting that free hand jerk in and out of her filthy matted hair. Bessie, come away there, please, he asks. Why? She says, snuggling closer. Frank never hurt me. Men like you hurt me. He has to admit, she has a point. A very good point. So he doesn't bother to tell her again that he won't hurt her. Knows it's futile. Where were you? She asks again. Where were you when everyone went away? He swallows. Were you with them? She waves at the wall. May as well have been, says his old man. No, he says eventually. I was with people. Good people. We found a place. A safe place. At least for a while. And now? Where's your safe place now? Beth's name is out of his mouth before he can stop himself. Because no, it's not that little house, number seven, with its cerulean flower box. It's not a moonshine cabin or an old funeral home. It's none of those things. His safe place is Beth. Beth is his home. Who's Beth? she asks, suddenly perking up, interested in his story. Beth is... he starts. Your girl, says his ma. Your piece of ass, says his old man. Yours, says Beth. She's Beth. She sings and she's gentle, but she's tough as nails. She... she's sitting up now. She's taken Nolly's hand now as well. He's briefly reminded of his ma during one of her religious episodes. 
when she'd make them hold hands and say grace around the table, thanking the Lord for his bounty. His bounty? What a joke. Some roadkill and a few grizzly potatoes that grew in the back garden. Most of the time it made them sick because the meat was already rancid. But his mom made them say it, even while his old man screamed at her that she was a dumb bitch, a whore, a cunt, and that the Lord had closed his gates to her a long time ago. Closed his gates to all of them. The Lord had no call for Dixons. But they'd sit there, hands linked, while she prayed over bad food and thanked the Lord for all their blessings. He wonders if Bessie is religious, if she thanked the Lord for leaving her brother and sister with her, leaving her to care for their living corpses. Are you good to her, this Beth? Or do you hurt her? He swallows, his mouth dry. I take care of her, she takes care of me. I know how men like you take care of girls. No, Bessie, you don't. He's surprised by the certainty he feels when he says this. Surprised by his complete and utter belief that what he has with Beth is wholly good, and what he feels for her is real and decent and right. It's liberating, and once again terrifying. She's not so sure, though, and she watches him warily. You'd like her, he says. She'd like you, too. He's not sure why he's saying this. Makes him nervous that his mind has jumped to a time where she could meet Beth and get to know her. Makes him realize that in his head he's already thinking of taking her back with him, finding a way to make it work for the three of them. It's nuts, because he has no idea how he'd keep any of them safe. How he could trust Bessie, feral and starved and out of her head, around Beth. Around him. Where they'd find enough food, enough meds, enough anything to keep three of them going. And yet he finds he doesn't care. Because he knows he can't just leave her here, living like an animal among the dead waiting for Joe and his gang to come back and finish the job. He'll take her on. He knows he will. He's always taken the lame dogs on. He thinks of Layla again. Layla the mangy mutt that she was. How Merle had laughed when he caught Daryl feeding her. Told him he was wasting his time. She'd never be a friend. Beaten once too many times, kicked too hard, starved too often. Mutt would take his arm off one day as easily as she'd lay gentle licks on his fingers. She hadn't, though. She'd become his friend when she was around, would wag her tail when she saw him, and follow him into the woods when he went hunting. She was quiet, quiet and loyal and good, and sometimes he'd sit at the stream, grilling his catch over a small fire, and she'd rest her head on his leg. She was wary at first, but he hadn't pushed her, and one day she just relaxed next to him, nuzzled his hand and lay quiet and still while he shared some roasted squirrel with her, her bites far too dainty for the hunger he knew she was feeling. Who knows? Maybe Bessie could be his friend, too. Him and Beth's. God knows they could all use one right now. Bessie, most of all. He's telling her this before he can stop himself, inviting her to come and live with them, telling her about the eight houses and how she can choose where she wants to stay, and how he and Beth will look after her. She'll have running water and food to eat. He thinks it's a good speech, a convincing one, is already making plans about how he'll fix the water in one of the other houses and dividing their supplies in his head. But when he's done, she's still eyeing him warily. I'm not going anywhere with you, she says. You can't claim me. I won't let you.
What You Think by Vlora. Beth couldn't tell what month it was. She thought late summer to autumn, for the heat was dissipating and the leaves were crinkling. But it could be her imagination. It wasn't winter, that much she knew. It's not too important, really, except that it shifted the daylight hours about. She would love to think about the seasons and what they'd once meant. December for Christmas. July for Independence Day. That isn't her focus right now. The campy. Beth didn't have the luxury of focusing on anything but the now. No time for semantics, for details that she couldn't hope to discover without some help from... Who? Who decided what day it was, what month it was? Who had first decided it? Beth had never thought of it before, but she wished she had. She may never know now. The girl stepped into the lounge, taking to the once-plush couch. It had marks and tears down the cushions by looters looking for hidden wealth. They'd finished clearing the house from attic to basement. It wasn't very secure, with two walls ready to give out in the back, but it'd do for now. That's all they needed, for now. It was just herself and Daryl, like it had been for the past week. There hadn't been signs of the others. Of anyone, really. They were alone. Her mind would sometimes skid back to the people she'd seen by the tracks. The confirmed deaths. Heavy footsteps sounded toward the lounge. He walked like a hunter in the forests, and a baby elephant everywhere else. She knew she could relax now. Daryl had finished his final round. He'd hammered up some sheets of wood along the broken doors, but they were to slow rather than stop walkers. He'd tried, at least. It's clear. I know, Beth yawned. She had her hands folded in her lap. Were it a year ago, when the couch had been clean, her hair straight, her clothes freshly pressed, she may have looked the part. It was a sweet home, with family pictures still lining the walls. Some of the mother in them were defaced, with breasts and things haloing her head in a degrading fashion. The husband and two girls received eye patches and scorch marks. Daryl knocked one down, lips sneered. He probably didn't know Beth was watching him. Now what? Sleep, eat, shit. Beth made a face, somewhere between amused and disgusted by his frankness. Her hands were now tucked under her thighs as she admired the lounge. It was quaint, with elegant furniture. The year hadn't been kind to it, though. Dust covered almost every surface, along with bloodstains and mucky footprints. All old, all worn. Daryl had assured her of that. While Beth picked up a novel that had been sitting on the table beside her, Daryl continued to circle. He marched around the room, as she could see him moving. She was flicking through the pages, reminding herself of words she'd had no use for. Fancy ones that got you a better mark in English and ruined your work in science. She tutted at the torn-out pages, but understood. Some things were more important in these sorts of situations. A book could be desecrated, for the sake of a fire and some light. Daryl stopped, which made Beth look up. He was standing by the shattered window. She nervously watched him before letting her attention slip back to the book in her hand, taking in nothing except the brief reverie away from her thoughts. There was a distant snap, an earthy crackle of a stalk being broken. It went on for a few minutes. Maybe he'd found some herbs, or... Hey! Daryl made a sound as if beckoning a dog. Not that he meant it that way, she knew. Hmm? Beth looked over to Daryl, lids heavy. She didn't have much time to react, not before rough fingers took to her chin and tilted her head gently this way and that. Words failed to pass over her lips, though her eyes were growing wider by the second... Then she was let go, though her eyes were still set on Daryl. He'd been standing before her, staring intently between her eyes and hair. What, Daryl? 
themselves. What a thought. What? Beth impatiently repeated, all nerves and concern. It wasn't wholly surprising he'd taken her chin between his fingers, but why was the worry? Usually he was checking for bites, bug and otherwise. What had he seen? Her fingers nervously darted to her throat, then to the weight that sat upon her ear. She thought it was that her hair had shifted with a turning, but there was something else there, perched against her ear. Daryl, what did you put in my hair? Beth let out a squeak of concern, trying to pull whatever it was out of her hair. When flowers fell into her lap, she let out a confused laugh, looking between him and the array of flowers. You act like I never do anything nice. You don't. Just did. Beth's eyes were practically screaming. He'd pulled off a bunch of flowers and... What? Tucked them against her ear. She turned red from hairline to chest, lips screwed up tightly together. I was scared you'd put bugs or... Beth struggled to find words, trying to justify her worry. Daryl rolled his eyes, mumbling about never doing anything nice for her again. He moved away again, playing at the window. He was trying to close it for what little good that would do them. The glass had been taken out of it, smashed or otherwise. She continued to watch him, grumbling and smacking at the wooden frame. Beth felt awful. What did you think? Huh? You said it was what you thought. Beth was gently playing with the flowers, trying to fix the damage she'd inflicted upon them. She'd overreacted, and she felt so silly for it. Daryl lingered by the windowsill, giving it a few more flat-palmed hits. A mumbled, I don't know, came from him, matched by a roll of his shoulders. He hadn't turned back to her, and she noticed how he'd hunched, how he'd pulled away. She'd pulled apart a sweet gesture by him, a silly something he'd likely done to make her feel better. No, no mumbling. I like hearing what you have to say. Speak if you want to. I'm not here to judge you. Beth scooped up the flowers, trying to place them into her hair once more. It was something to do while she waited for his answer. She managed to work the frayed ends into her hair, and was using a mirror from her bag to examine it. She had to smile, the weeds and daisies all mixed together like they used to, back at her ranch. Daryl turned back, only briefly looking at her. You're that kind of girl. One with flowers in her hair all spring. Not many of them left. Beth hoped she smiled, even as her attention dropped to her lap and lips curled downward. I guess not. Hmm. She flicked a few of the remaining petals and pollen off her lap, not sure what else to say. Was it a good thing that he saw her like that? Not as a fighter like Maggie or Michonne, or a survivor like Carol. She was a girl with flowers in her hair and a smile on her face. Ain't a bad thing. It's who you are. Beth smiled this time, not wanting to spoil the moment. In her attempts to spare his shy nature, she missed the smile he sent her way. It was better that way. Girls with flowers in their hair didn't slum with shit like him. That was the thought that spurred him to do a second, third, fourth search of the house. Because maybe, if he could keep her safe, if he could protect her, he might be worthy of her. All the while, Beth read the book with torn out pages and a cracked spine. going to do it for this episode of keep singing thank you so much for having been here this was as usual a lot of fun 
Uh, just a reminder, if you want to help support this podcast, help keep it running, help me keep doing the other fandom things that I do, first of all, it is incredibly, incredibly helpful if you reblog, if you tell people about it, if you spread the word. Anybody that you think might want to listen who isn't listening, let them know that this is maybe something that they should be listening to. That is absolutely fantastic, and I love you for it. If you want to support the podcast in a more material way, go check out the PayPal tip jar on the website, keepsingingpodcast.wordpress.com, or go to my Patreon, which is linked on both the SoundCloud page and on the top of my Tumblr page. Assuming I can keep the schedule that I have been sticking to going, and so far, again, I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job of that, the next one of these will drop two Mondays from now, not next Monday, but the Monday after. So, in two weeks, in other words. And I will be talking to Susan slash Tea, which I'm extremely excited about. And in fact, I have already done it. I recorded that this afternoon, so I'm excited about editing that then. So, yeah. Gonna be continuing. Gonna be soldiering on. I feel good about it. I feel good about you. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye.